Um, but good morning and welcome everyone for real to the first day of residency. I'm so excited to be here. It really is special to come back to this. I mean, I did an MFA program and every time I come to something like this, t 10 days of writing boot camp, there's nothing like being in the presence of other writers and creators and artists. So enjoy this time, soak it up, take it in and welcome. Okay. Um, yes, uh, I left some with Matt back there. Okay. Uh, so Matt has extra handouts. I have a little handout just so you can track what I'm doing. There's a little checklist on the back. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, the number one question I get asked in workshops is how to know when a story is finished. Uh, and I'm not going to give you a direct answer to that question today. Um, not exactly. <laughs> but I'm going to help you figure out how to finish a story how to make a story ending achieve the effect you want, and maybe where you might consider ending a story. So hopefully those ideas will lead to something better. Um, I came here thinking I was going to create a list of tips and tools to make your ending sharp and resonant, and you will get some of those. But what I realized when I conceived this talk was that endings don't stand alone. I like body metaphors. I'm a runner. And recently I had what I think was a case of tendonitis in my ankle. I had this sore tendon on the outside of my right ankle that would flare up at times and cause me a lot of pain. Um, and it would prevent me from walking. Well, how do you treat tendonitis? Well, it needs some rest, obviously. But what I didn't know intuitively is that the tendon is connected to about a thousand other muscles in my foot and my leg that carrying too much weight on my back could affect my walking gait. You see where I'm going with this. Um, you go into a doctor's office because you're too tired. You end up realizing that you're anemic, that you're deficient in some very important vitamin or mineral, that your diet's all wrong, or that you've got some genetic disorder that saps your body of iron. Um, endings are like that too. I can't treat just the ending today. We have to learn to be like doctors. We have to learn to treat our stories like sick patients, to treat our stories holistically. Um, the one thing I want you to take away from this seminar is that you, the author, have a whole lot of control over what your story is about. By choosing to end a story at a certain place, at a certain time in the narrative arc, and even more importantly, by laying certain groundwork before the ending, you can create what I'm going to refer to as resonance. Um, picture a bell. Now picture someone ringing that bell. You want to craft an ending that dings for the reader, reader, that echoes out from the heart of the story that came before it. And hopefully, the sound of that bell ringing, that pitch-perfect ending to your story or essay, will stay with your reader long after the reader has finished your work. A quick caveat, I've developed much of this seminar around short stories, but the rules apply, I believe, equally to nonfiction and to longer narrative forms like the novel. Um, sub an essay for story as your heart desires. At the end of the day, we're working on narratives and how to shape them. Truth be told, I learned many of these lessons from a playwright. Um, as a quick overview, and so you can track where we're headed, here's what we're going to cover today. First, you need to ask yourself what kind of story you want to tell. Once you figure that out, deciding how and where to end a story will be much easier. Uh, two, Everything that comes before an ending affects how an ending will resonate. Therefore, we need to take some time to learn and understand how playing around 
with the weighting of the different elements of a story can change a reader's focus on an emotional response to the work at hand. In the second part of the seminar, we're going to focus on story elements and a little on structuring them into your work. Um, for the third part, I'd like to look at a few case studies. We've got the classic story, A Good Man's Hard to Find, an emotional piece written about the AIDS crisis and the story in the gloaming, and a thought-heavy heady piece by Ursula K. Le Guin called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Finally, I'll wrap up, offer a few tips and lessons, and we should have some time for questions at the end. Okay, let's start with a simple question. What kind of story do you want to tell? I might catch some flack for asking this, as I know people set about writing stories in a lot of different ways. Some people like to plan ahead an outline. Some people argue for a more freeform routine. Some people say that a story comes to them as they write, during the writing process. At the end of the day, you do you, of course, and stick with whatever makes you most comfortable. But at some point in the writing process, I want you to ask yourself those big, hard questions. What is my story about? What do I want it to be about? What kind of effect do I want this story to have? If you don't know that, even at some gut level, you're going to get lost in the woods of your writing. Writing a story that's meant to make your reader cry at the end is a very different kind of story than a mystery or a more genre-focused thriller or action piece. This isn't a swipe at so-called genre fiction. We just need to understand that different types of writing have different structures and different focuses. Different types of writing do different things to readers. Each of these kinds of stories, the character-driven piece of literary fiction, the page-turning mystery, the thought-driven conceptual piece, that plotless piece of surrealism you've been working on, each <laughs> leaves readers with a different feeling. The intent of your piece, the kind of story you want to write, is going to dictate the story's form and ultimately the ending. Frequently, I notice that in workshopping of other people's work and in the revision of my own work, I uncover a mismatch of sorts. The emotional content of the story or the loudness of the story or the mystery of the story doesn't match up with the type of ending that has been crafted. Some plot line has been left unfinished, a character unexpectedly emotes too strongly. Quite often, I notice that in the end, a character makes a choice that's meant to be perceived as tough, but during the course of the story, I haven't seen the character grapple. In conversations with other writers and students, and in some hard self-reflection during times my own stories weren't working out, I've realized that there's often an easy explanation for this disconnect. The story the writer set out to write isn't the story the writer put down on the page. Sometime during the process of writing, the heart of the piece shifted, and yet the writer is still attached to that original idea. Said writer tacks on this brilliant ending that was meant for the original story idea, but the brilliant ending actually belongs to a story that was never written. <laughs> so when I just told you that you need to ask yourself what your story is about, that you need to spend a little time understanding what you want this piece of work to be doing, remember that these questions need to occur not just at the beginning of your writing, but throughout the writing process. Let's all caps this for you. If your story evolves, don't forget to let the ending evolve accordingly, okay? As we continue with the seminar, and as you step into your workshops this week, I want you to begin thinking of stories and essays and pieces of writing in general as contracts. 
The choices you make in each step of a story lead readers to expect a certain kind of ending, and in a sense, vice versa. On a basic level, let's think of this. A mystery reader is most likely going to feel awfully robbed if the identity of the killer isn't revealed. <laughs> Right? Um, in another sense, do you need that explosive, melodramatic ending to your quiet piece of contemplative fiction? What I want you to start thinking about is writing as a contract, writing as an exercise in the building up of certain expectations, and most importantly, writing as something that has an equilibrium. In order for a piece of writing to achieve this equilibrium, in the most basic sense, I want you to ask yourself a question, preferably when you've given yourself a little distance from the first draft. Does the tone, content, and spirit of the ending match up with the tone, content, and spirit of what came before it? If you know what your story is about, even if that means adjusting your own expectations at some stage during the writing process, you will begin to be able to diagnose these mismatches between story and ending, and you will begin to understand where to focus your attention on revision to allow a story to achieve harmony. Okay, now I wanna move on to the second part of this, and I wanna teach you something I learned from an old mentor of mine. Um, let's play doctor. Let's talk about story elements. <laughs> <laughs> It gets worse. No, just kidding. No. Um, I think one of the greatest lessons I ever received in writing came from a playwright. It's an interesting thing to consider how much playwrights are thinking about audience, about the stage, about reaction. I think narrative fiction and nonfiction writers can do the same in our own way. Switch out a theater audience with a reader snuggled up with our work and we're on our way. I'm going to call this next bit Molly's Equalizer in honor of that playwright, but really the lesson comes from way, way back from Aristotle's poetics and his discussion about tragedies. Um, much as we learn the elements of a story in high school, Aristotle outlined several elements that he thought comprised a tragedy. He even ranked them in order of importance, and so I'm going to briefly outline these here with little basic definitions that aren't super important, but will help you get to thinking about it. Um, the first one was plot. Uh, this one's obvious. It's the arrangement of the events of the tragedy, or in our case, the story itself. This is the what happens, right? Character was his second most important. And again, these are the players of the tragedy, or in our case, the characters themselves. But also think about character development in terms of this little number two. Thought. This one is a bit complicated, but important. I like to think of this as the rules of the universe, the morality of your characters, and the morality of the world in which they inhabit, okay? So that's a little heady, but let that sink in for a little while, okay? Um, diction, this is the way in a tragedy that language is communicated. In our case, we can think of it perhaps as the style of the piece of writing, the way character, characters communicate via dialogue is one element, but really the words themselves. Um, he used song, which I love. Uh, he said that diction should be embellished. And one of those ways you can imagine on a stage and tragedy was through song. Um, but think of this again as style, as perspective, as rhythm, as voice. Whatever helps you to understand that a text has a heartbeat of sorts, has something that makes it different than other texts that makes it ultimately yours. Um, and one of my favorites was spectacle. In a tragedy, this would refer to the staging of the play as in what actually was presented on the stage. Think of lighting, 
Think of stunts, think of explosions, think of chase scenes. Okay, that's a lot. <laughs> Here's where it gets fun, and this is what Molly the playwright, a woman who liked to play around with form and tradi tradition, suggested we young students do with these elements. She asked us to imagine that a play, or again, in our case, a story or essay, can only bear so much weight. In your 10 or 20 pages of a story, imagine that your piece can only privilege and hold so much of each of these elements, and that for each element that we privilege, we must deprivilege one of the others. Um, I, she asked us to imagine an equalizer, which I've just put a little example on your sheet so you, in case you don't know what an equalizer is. Um, on that equalizer, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, on that equalizer, the elements of the play or story begin at the same level. Depending on what you want the piece to be about, and depending on how you want the audience to react, you shift the dial up or down on each of the elements to create a unique combination that achieves the effect you're seeking. Um, I'll start with a couple examples about stage performances and movies to make this easy to think about, and then let's shift our thinking over to our narrative structures. Let's take an action movie like your Die Hards or your Vin Diesel flicks or whatever the heck you kids are watching these days. Um, on our equalizer in those movies, what element out of this list do you think is privileged? Spectacle, Spectacle for sure, and what else? Plot. Plot, absolutely, yeah. So I'm gonna start with plot. Um, and now in an action movie, we're gonna have to dial up the plot, and because of that, something else has to give, okay? So let's take character, for example. Uh, yes, action heroes have stories, and yes, they do have some character development, but it's not nearly as deep as your typical drama. Guy or woman has a problem, there's a bad person who is doing bad things, there's a bunch of chasing around and some fighting, and then the good guy or woman overcomes the thing, achieves a fairly shallow redemption of sorts, and we're all cheering, right? That's, that's your action movie, yeah. This, this explains so much typecasting and how somebody like Vin Diesel always plays that same role because it's the short to cut to, to character. We know his character, right? Yeah, he's, he stands in for something, yeah, right, 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 absolutely, right. yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Now, in a movie like Die Hard or Jurassic Park or some of the other big budget action flicks, we mention also that spectacle is dialed up, right? That's the bombs, the dinosaurs, the experiential things that move us in a different way than a plot or a character. They're the things that make us feel awe or shock or catch our eyes. Again, so we can see in this case of an action movie, plot's up, spectacle's up, and character has been dialed down to give those other elements room to breathe. Um, it's not that character doesn't exist, but let's, thinking, let's start thinking about character development in terms of complexity of choices. In an action flick, the character still faces choices, but they're fairly shallow, often fairly black and white choices, and can often be resolved in a simple will he or won't he, right? Um, so let's take a different type of movie, um, like a classical mystery, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, for example. Um, any Agatha Christie novel we can sub in, the old Sherlock Holmes stories, or even something more modern if you want. Uh, and mysteries were presented with a completely different equalizer. What happens when a murder is the first thing you read about? Well, for one, plot is dialed down a good bit, counterintuitively almost, right? We already know what happens. Somebody's dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> In an action movie, you're wondering if the bad guy is going to press the red button and blow up the world, but in a mystery, the red button has already been pressed. The plot itself is focused on something much smaller, 
figuring out who did it. Because plot is so small in this type of narr narrative, character is ratcheted up. In a mystery, these sleuths go around hunting for motivations. So in a mystery, plot is dialed down, character is dialed up, and we readers are focused on trying to unravel character motivations by analyzing character choices and situations. Um, let's take a look at another less common but also important type of example. Uh, take the odd case of Waiting for Godot. How many of you have read Waiting for Godot way back in the day? Yeah, that's an easy one. Um, great. Well, in Waiting for Godot, what happens? <laughs> not, a whole, not a whole heck of a lot, right? Um, so, so plot is dialed way, way down. Um, what's going on with character development? Maybe also not a whole heck of a lie, right? Um, there isn't much spectacle because it all takes place on a single, rather static stage. Uh, so we can dial down plot, character, and spectacle. Uh, we've got some diction because they do a whole lot of talking. And what we're left with, what's at the top of the dial? Thought, right? So we, the readers, are left pondering what the heck this world is all about. We're left pondering what we're supposed to be thinking, uh, at least as thinking, pondering, philosophizing. We're not necessarily a whole lot for the characters. We're not really thinking about what happened. We're asking, what am I supposed to take away from this? What am I supposed to make of this world? Um, it's not that Waiting for Godot is any less entertaining or enjoyable than these other examples. It's just got a completely different equalizer, and it aims for a completely different effect, right? Um, why am I telling you this, and how does it relate to endings? It all comes back to you deciding the kind of story you want to tell. Notice that in an action movie, or in your case, your action adventure story, the through line is pointing to that one question, will the good guy or the bad guy win? The story resolves, the story ends, when this question is answered, right? Bad guy gets shot by good guy, story is over. <laughs> um, in your mystery, the through line is pointed at the stripping away of character layers, of character motivations. The story ends, must end, when character is fully revealed. In your quiet, contemplative piece of so-called domestic fiction, I really hate that term, um, the story will end when your quiet, thoughtful character has meaningfully grappled with some tough thought or choice. Different types of stories require different endings. The choices you make on your own personal equalizer will affect what kind of story, uh, what kind of ending your story requires. So again, before we get to some specific endings, you need to remember that story conception, what you want and hope your story will do, dictates form, dictates structure, dictates the weighting of the elements in your piece, and ultimately dictates that your story have a certain type of ending. When you read a comment on one of your workshop pieces that says you didn't earn that ending, or maybe that your ending felt emotionally unsatisfying, it's perhaps because the end of your story doesn't match the structure. There's a disconnect between the particular weighting of these elements and the majority of your story and how your, your story actually ends. This means you have to revise your story so that either the structure of the story matches the ending or vice versa, um, that the through line and the type of resolution match up. You have to revise to make things consistent for a reader. Maybe you want to keep that very special ending because you know that's the kind of ending you want a reader to feel. You want your reader sobbing at this very emotional final moment. Well, what you're possibly seeing is that you messed up in the waiting somewhere along the line, you focused too much on plot, not enough on character, and you're going to have to go back and fix it. A quick note, 
for us fiction and nonfiction writers, it's not so important that we stick with Aristotle's terms and definitions. In fact, I'd encourage you to create your own equalizer with your own story elements and your own terms for them. Um, as we said about crafting our own narratives, think about the kinds of stories you tell and think about how you typically set your dial. When you look at your peers' work in class, try to imagine what the story wants to be, what it seems to be screaming at you, what the lifeblood of that piece is, and then think of that equalizer, approach the work like a surgeon, and try to identify the disconnect between what the story wants to be and what it is. Some vital part of the story's system might be off balance. Okay, now I promised you at the title of the seminar that I was going to teach you how to craft endings that resonate, and we are going to get there, I promise. <laughs> um, but if you haven't figured it out yet, an ending never stands on its own. its own. It's the product of everything that comes before it. It's the product of character development and choices and plot lines and even spectacles. If you've decided what you want your story to be about, then somewhere deep inside of you, you know that the story must end and, and what you must do to earn that particular ending. Let's look at three very different stories as case studies. Um, each of these three stories has an ending that resonates loud and clear. One of these endings focuses, focuses on a deeply emotional level, another in a more hypothetical, hypothetical philosophical headspace, and all three endings, in my opinion, are highly effective, if not surprising. We're going to dissect these endings like a pathologist. The first thing we're going to do is determine what each story is about. We're going to look at all the groundwork that was laid along the way. And then we're going to look at the endings and figure out how they achieve their magic. Okay, let's turn to In the Gloaming by Alice Elliott Dark. Okay, pull this up. Um, I asked you to read this. This is actually a story by my former MFA teacher, which is really fun to teach in a class. Um, she was, this story was selected by John Updike as one of the best 100 stories of the century, uh, last century. <laughs> uh, Alice is still active in writing in New Jersey. She's a fantastic writer and she is also a wonderfully empathetic teacher, if you can't tell by her writing. I, you can probably imagine, right? Um, uh, but let's start with the first question. What is this story about? Let's level one. It's about a man who has AIDS and comes home to die at the home of his mother and father. But that's not really good enough. Um, that's very surface level. Complexity is your friend in writing and story conception and in analysis, okay? So let's level two this. Look at the next layer. It's a story about a waspy family. And as we like to generalize about waspy families, they have a hard time communicating. They have a hard time emoting. It's a story about a dying son who cuts through the bullshit and makes his mother come to life again. A son who teaches his mother something about living graciously even as he's dying. Um, it's an emotional story. I've heard it called a too hanky affair. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a deceptively complex story for reasons I will say later. Um, and I chose it today for all these reasons and because it has, in my opinion, a very smart and a very surprising ending. Um, we'll talk about that ending and about the use of the father, about one of the best uses I've ever read of a minor character in a story. Um, if you were going to conceive of a story about the AIDS crisis, about a dying son, your first instinct might be to put this in the point of view of the son, right? But it's not told from the point of view of the son, it's told from the perspective of the mother. It's Dark's first interesting choice, and one I think helps this story avoid cliche and become something much greater. Uh, I know her a little personally. She lived in Manhattan in the late 70s and early 80s and had several close friends 
and the gay community who were affected by this crisis and was also fashion designer Tom Ford's roommate at one point. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a fun one. Um, I know this was devastating for her and those around her. I don't actually know of how she decided to write this story, but I like to speculate. Um, it was published in the early 90s, and by this point, she had been married and had a young son. I like to imagine her thinking, I want to tell a story that captures the heart of this crisis, but how can I tell it? She uses her strengths. She was now a mother of a young child. She was beginning to imagine what it would be like to lose a son, to imagine all the things unsaid, to think of the irony of her life continuing while this young life, barely in bloom, would come to an end. Um, again, as I said before, story conception is so, so important. You're not going to get a good ending unless you have a well-conceived story. So she decides to write from the point of view of the mother. The son's illness and impending death is tragedy enough already, and she makes the mother guarded, a little unhappy, but not unlikable. And so what we end up with is a seemingly straightforward narrative, a mother and her son sitting in chairs, talking about life, with the backdrop of the sunset, his death looming, his end of life parallel to the gloaming. Um, using Molly's equalizer, we can see that plot in the story is dialed pretty far down, right? The story takes place at one house, and we don't see them doing anything really but talking, watching, and listening. Uh, too much plot in this type of story can get in the way of character development. There's hardly any spectacle, except maybe that quiet, beautiful sunset looming in the background, right? We're left with character, and character in the story is revealed through dialogue, through these unexpected moments between mother and son, through the mother's tight perspective, and the near silence of the father in the background. Let's take a look at how the story begins, and then we'll look at a few key passages before taking in the ending. Okay, I'm just gonna read a little. Her son wanted to talk again, suddenly. During the days he still brooded, scowling at the swimming pool from the vantage point of his wheelchair, where he sat covered with blankets, despite the summer heat. In the evenings, though, Laird became more like his old self, his old, old self, really. He became sweeter, the way he'd been as a child, before he began to cloak himself with layers of irony and clever remarks. He spoke with an openness that astonished her. No one she knew talked that way, no man at least. After he was asleep, Janet would run through the conversations in her mind and realize what it was she wished she had said. She knew she was generally considered sincere, but that had more to do with her being a good listener than how she expressed herself. She found it hard work to keep up with him, but it was the work she had pined for all her life. Um, we're presented immediately with a reticent narrator, Janet, someone who seems to be holding back, possibly unsure. There's something there in that quiet, careful tone of the third-person perspective. We have a view of the sun, a man who speaks like no other man in Janet's life, which already brings up a question of how Janet relates to men in general. We're presented with a traditional housewife of sorts, but one who finds her son's difference intriguing, who finds the hard work to keep up with him, the type of work she had pined for all her life. As she and Lair begin the series of conversations that define the story, we see them seesawing between the mundane and the heavy, the nostalgic and the deeply personal present. You always had the loveliest expression, he says on page 388, and we read that she was astonished, caught off guard. 
Soon, we jump to Laird's request to plan his will, and then quickly, we jump into the heart of the story, Laird's simple but pointed questions to his mother, which slowly excavate the feelings she keeps inside. On page 389, Laird says, I want to get to know you. Oh, Laird, there's nothing to know. But it's true, I'm average. The only extraordinary thing about me is my children. And then down a little further, that night she lay awake trying to think of how she could help, of what aside from her time she had to offer, she couldn't imagine. Their conversations continue throughout the story at times, taking on an almost sexual tone as the mother opens up to her son in a way that she has not opened up to her husband. Her husband remains firmly in the background, and we're told pointedly that her husband can't handle being around their son in his current state. We also learn that her husband seems to have more of an affinity for his work than he does for Janet. At one point in Janet's perspective, Dark writes, suddenly, she realized, Laird had been the love of her life. As stated, this narrative is quite simple at first glance, but this assumption belies the deafness in which Dark switches back and forth from lighter to heavier dialogue, how she slowly strips away Janet's hard outer shell, and how Martin's ghostly presence is kept looming in the background. On page 402, as Laird dies, we see the first potential endpoint of the story, um, and many would perhaps choose to logically end here. Janet has gone through the first stages of a transformation. Laird's life has come to an end, but he said what he must to his mother. It would be a perfectly poignant and quiet ending, the two of them spending those last moments together with Martin off stage. So let's look at that scene in the first paragraph of page 402, okay? He seemed to like hearing the sound of her voice. This is a tough one, sorry guys. <laughs> Uh, so she went on, her needles clicking. Afterward, she could never remember for sure at what point she had stopped talking, and it had floated off into a jumble of her own thoughts, afraid to move, afraid to look up, afraid to know at which exact moment she became alone. All she knew was that at a certain point, the fire was in danger of dying out entirely, and when she got up to stir the embers, she glanced at him in spite of herself and saw that his fingers were making knitting motions over his chest the way people did as they were dying. She knew that if she went to get the nurse, Laird would be gone by the time she returned. So she went and stood behind him, leaning over to press her face against his, sliding her hands down his busy arms, helping him along, oh God, with his fretful stitches until he finished this last piece of work. This is what, I mean, good grief. Ah! Um, that would have been enough, right? That probably would have been enough of an ending for most stories. We could have, she could have ended there. It would have closed in this beautiful, lovely way. Um, it would have been a fantastic last line, too. But she doesn't choose to end there. Exactly. She instead moves on to give us one last scene with the living, with Janet and Martin. Martin has barely said a word in this entire story. We have been led to under... Zero. Yeah, right, nothing. Um, we have been led to understand that he doesn't hate his son, but the, the emotional processing required to be present with the son is too much. So here then, we get an ending that is so much greater than that other option. We see Janet angry, we hear Martin sobbing, and then we have a role reversal of sorts. Janet, who has been buttoned up emotionally, who has been incapable of even thinking in certain ways, 
becomes the strong one, becomes the laird to her Martin. As her anger veers away, as Dark says, Janet creates space for Martin, the shadow figure who has been lurking in this entire story, to have his own transformative experience that she herself was gifted by her son's death. Um, the story ends with Martin asking, please tell me what else did my boy like? And we are taken back to Janet and Laird, sorry, uh, sitting in the gloaming for that first time. It's an ending that is perhaps much more gracious than one that would end upon Laird's death, and it's a much stronger and complex story because of that. Uh, let's go back to that first question, though. What is this story about? So it's not really about a son dying from AIDS, right? Maybe that's what Dark originally set out to write about, but I suspect she allowed the story to evolve, had a moment or two of self-reflection, and realized that the story had taken on a life of its own. It ends up being about two adults in a quiet marriage who have lost the ability to be emotional. It's about two living adults who are pulled from their complacency, their lives that don't actually seem to contain that much living because of their, the death of their son. To achieve an ending that resonates with readers, to achieve something that is greater than just a mere tragedy of a son dying, Dark needed to push the story further than one might expect. And there's a simple lesson in that. Try to push your stories and essays one scene further. That's all I ask of you. Just push them one scene further. Um, if for no other reason than to op open up possibility, okay? We sometimes hem ourselves in by the expected, by what logic would seem to dictate, or even by our own original conceptions of what a story should be. But here, Dark has ended up with something greater because she's pushed her story beyond the obvious. Instead of giving us a story about death and dying, Dark has given us an emotionally resonant, resonant and bittersweet story about possibility. In that last sentence, for the first time in the story, we readers have a sense that life might just be beginning for these two souls. We don't know, right? But there's possibility there. Now, she does another important thing in this story that allows the ending to resonate, and this is something that's indispensable for writers. She uses tracking devices. A tracking device is simply an object that shows up multiple times or a repeated word or phrase forces a reader to remember what came before and to briefly recognize how a character or situation has changed. The first and most obvious one that Dark uses is that phrase, in the gloaming, which is also the title of the story, so we're going to pay extra special attention to it. The first time it comes up is on the third page of the story, on page 387. Let's go there and look at that scene really quickly. Okay, 387, yeah. The gloaming, he said suddenly. She nodded dreamily, automatically, then sat up. She turned to him. What? Although she had heard. I remember when I was little, you took me over to this picture window and told me that in Scotland, this time of day was called the gloaming. Um, the first use of this phrase catches our eyes for a few reasons. <laughs> it's the word, the first words we hear Laird say, and it's also the title, as I said, so we're gonna notice it. Um, the phrase links us to his childhood and to a happy memory he has with his mother when he wasn't sick. Over the course of the story, uh, the word pops up again in exact terminology, but also in an inexact way at times. It becomes their habit, their shared moment each evening in which to talk. And every time the phrase shows up, we track how Laird's body is disintegrating. We remember, even if just subconsciously, how much stronger he was earlier in the story. 
but we also recognize how Janet has grown emotionally over the course of the story, how she has opened up during their conversations, and how their relationship has grown. We see a use of the phrase, just as Laird is dying, and we see a use of the phrase in the final paragraph with Janet and Martin. And each time, we remember something of what has come before and how these characters have been changing. These tracking devices allow the story to resonate in a sense. They ring the bell of what the story is about by making us recall the pivotal moments that came before. There's also one other sort of tracking device of just a little echo. It's Martin's final phrase, please tell me what else did my boy like? That phrase uttered by Martin and therefore already noticeable because of his general <laughs> lack of speech during the story, harkens back to a phrase that Laird uttered to Janet during their first conversation in which he requests to get to know her better. What else do you like, he asked her. It's in Martin's use of this phrase that we're left with a sense of possibility because we've seen how far Janet has come. We have, therefore, some hope for Martin. We have a direct linkage to the optimism of his own son, and we understand that Janet, having just transformed herself, may be gracious enough to allow Martin to go down this path. And speaking of Martin, let's talk for a minute about a phrase that some of you may have heard bandied about in writing workshops or in writing guides. An ending should be inevitable but surprising. It's a great idea, and it's a useful way to think about stories to keep you on track. How I'd like to consider that phrase here is in Alice Stark's use of the Martin character. An ending should be inevitable but surprising. Surprising doesn't mean out of left field, right? <laughs> so even if you surprise your readers in some way, remember to use the tools you have at hand. That so-called surprise has to come from something that, as an, that is an important, even if minor, part of the story. Martin is a minor character, but he's not an unimportant character. His presence is made known and is felt through the entire narrative. He's physically present for a moment, and then when he's gone, the dialogue at times concerns him. When you write a story, you're playing a game of direction and misdirection with the reader's attention. Dark makes us notice Martin, keeps his presence hovering throughout the course of the narrative, and when we're busy focusing on the tragedy of Laird's death, on the budding transformation of Janet, we're reminded at that final moment that he was always there. The inevitability of this ending is that Laird was going to die, that Janet is probably going to have to grapple with his death and possibly assess her own life, but the surprising part is that Martin gets swept up in all of this too, okay? Isn't this a great story? I love teaching this story. It's fantastic. And, and the justification for Martin's, the Martin ending is also that he was a source of great conflict other than the fact that the son was dying. The lack of communication and emotional relationship was between the couple. Who is going to have to go on and deal with this? Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And, and that was buried all of the way through. Mm -hmm. It's so subtle, <laughs> but it's, it's there. You're absolutely right. That's well, absolutely accurate. Yeah. yeah. And she gets oh, yeah. to the. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go for it. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, there's a, an implication, although it's never articulated, that the fact that he was gay was also, you know, a source of that conflict, and now he's dying of AIDS. And so that's another layer there that I think is not unimportant. Absolutely not unimportant. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you 100%.
Yeah, I watched it, finally. Glenn Close. It's like a 1990s HBO movie. Yeah. 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 It's got this heart-wrenching soundtrack of bagpipes during the whole time. So you're just like, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. For Janet, where she, she it, it never occurred to her that, and I'm paraphrasing, it never occurred to her that he might be having an affair. She kind of hoped she, he was, that he felt bad and was trying to find some way to feel better. Yeah. That, that gave her comfort that he might be feeling bad about this thing that she's dealing with directly. And at the end, when he returns after the son has died, now he can, the son is a static thing. Mm. And he can, now he can deal with it. Mm -hmm. And just that, his rising uh, emotional maturity, or his opportunity for emotional maturity, that we've already watched Janet go through. Yeah. Um, and just, the, the other tracking device that I noticed is how uh, the talk of Janet's body, where he talks of her body, and then at one point she's in the shower and she said she had, she had begun to... Uh, she barely paid attention to her own body anymore. Yeah. And it's, she becomes disembodied in, in a way. Yeah. On the sex. Th there, are so many, there are so many of those and so many layers to the story that all point to that ending also. That's the brilliant part. They all come together. I saw more hands. Yeah, go ahead. I, I read the read this a second time, and I had a very Betty Friedan moment with this. You had a big what? A very Betty Friedan Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. suffered from the sort of the feminine mystique kind of she didn't exist she just yeah she just was a robot blah 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 and even the husband at the end he was really not important either because who was he coming to mm. uh, to make things right he was like a kid yeah coming to his mother and so I I mean I it had a real shift yeah. The question of womanhood and what that means in the story is very central to this, right? Um, no, nineties, early nineties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any other thoughts? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really very nice how that transition happens in the story. It's wonderful. All right, I better move on because we're going to run out of time. We've got two more stories to get to. Um, let's go to, uh, again, love that story. Keep it in your pocket. I come back to that one, and it teaches me something every time I read it. I learn something new from it. Uh, let's go to the ones who walk away from Omelas. Uh, <laughs> very different story, right? Um, but also a really fun story. I like this story a lot. Um, well, let's follow this pattern. What is this story about? <laughs> uh, we'll free associate. It's about a utopian world called Omelas, a world that has a dark secret on a plot level, which is fairly thin. Um, we're treated to a glimpse of the festival of the summer playing out. There's almost no dialogue. 
It's at its heart a thought experiment or an allegory of sorts, right? It explores issues of the philosophical concept of utilitarianism. Um, I chose this story for a couple of reasons, both of which uh, have to do with the ending. Um, let's start with the first, which is related to a lesson we learned from the last story. The structure of this story is on one hand quite simple. It's the building up of an impossibly perfect world in great detail. The wonder of the world building, the creation of that unique setting, functioning in a sense as the rising plot of the story in some ways. Um, and then the revelation of that deep dark secret that keeps that world perfection functioning sort, sort of serves as the climax of this story, right? Um, so the world building is in a sense the through line almost in one way. If you were to conceive of a story that hinged on a secret, you might first think that the revelation of that secret would be the natural endpoint of the story. But just as in other stories, a conflict arises and the conflict is resolved or isn't, but there's a choice that is presented that must be grappled with. One of the main mistakes we writers sometimes make is to end narrative arcs at the moment of the big reveal, at the moment the conflict is resolved, at the moment a choice is made. There are certainly stories in which this can work. I would never be so strict as to suggest otherwise, but the beauty of a short story or essay is often the feeling it leaves you with at the end. I sometimes like to think that the best short stories and essays resolve one conflict, which I think of as the sort of temporal, current, local conflict, but suggest to us something about the direction of the future, about all the potential conflicts to come. Um, in this story, it would seem at first perfectly logical to end with a version of that third to last paragraph um, where the secret has been revealed. You can take a look at that if you'd like. That's on, uh, let me switch over. Third to last paragraph, that's on page uh, four of the story. Um, we learn that the local residents understand the devil's bargain they have been presented with. In this case, the locked child in the basement that is the source of all their happiness. It would be a somewhat depressing ending that would make us think of the big allegory. It would make us ponder what we would do if we were citizens of Amelus. But just like in Dark Story in the gloaming, Le Guin pushes the narrative one scene further to create a deeper, more complex story. She presents us with the image of a few select individuals walking away into the unknown, making a tough choice that we didn't even know was an option at that point, right? So I like to think of this, I like to think of story endings as pointed arrows. If Le Guin were to end the story of the revelation of the big dark secret, the arrow would be pointed straight ahead. It provides no possibility for contemplation, for change, for choice. It's a static arrow. But by extending the story one scene further, by just briefly offering us in that final paragraph something that is entirely outside of the local temporal narrative arc of this world, the pointed arrow suddenly takes on a dynamic direction. It points towards something that requires us, the readers, to do a little imagining. Uh, we can see the possibility that the arrow might shoot up and it might even fall back down again, right? It doesn't have to be one direction. Um, but whatever we, way we see the arrow moving, the important thing is that these, this ending, this last paragraph, the, an ending which occurs after the major through line of the narrative arc has come to an end, uh, it forces us readers to engage with the text, to use our imagination, and that imagination in a way that we wouldn't have 
if the story had ended on a more definitive note. Um, here, Le Guin implants a tiny suggestion of what is to come inside her heads, but she also preserves the mystery. Just as in Dark Story, we don't know exactly what will happen to Janet and Martin if, they truly, if they'll truly make something out of their son's death, but we've been shown that there is a possibility for Janet and Martin that they could change their lives. After reading In the Gloaming, we might imagine all of the potential possibilities for the two of them. We can see a world in which after the son's death, they become complacent again, which is as poignant as the alternative we could imagine, that they finally open up to each other and learn to love and communicate in a deep and meaningful way. So here, and the ones who walk away from Omelas, we are presented with just the bare minimum, a glimmer of possibility riddled with risk, but no clear picture of what comes to those who take the risk. Um, this is an important lesson for us writers. I'll qualify something I said earlier. Uh, we have a whole lot of control over how readers receive our stories, but it's important to preserve some of the mystery in our works, in our endings especially, so that we force our readers to engage and to use their imaginations. One effective way to think of endings in our works is to imagine that we're gently nudging our readers toward a possible interpretation, a possible vision of the future. We're not spelling it out exactly for them, and we're allowing them to perceive a range of outcomes. We're shooting a gently pointed arrow towards the kind of future we have conceived in our heads. Um, the second and related point I wanted to make about this ending has to do with going back to what the story wants to be. While this is undoubtedly an emotional story, I think it focuses largely in the headspace level, in what Aristotle referred to as thought. It's an allegory, or maybe even better, a thought experiment, and I want to talk about how Le Guin makes sure that the elements of this piece are leading up to this particular ending, and how that ending achieves the effect the story wants to make. If you want to write a thought piece, you need to allow the reader room to inhabit the story in a deeply individual way. And that's exactly what Le Guin does. Notice that the characters in the story, with a couple exceptions, are painted extremely vaguely. Faces and physicality are largely undescribed. We might learn about the citizens' clothes and adornment, but we largely learn about them collectively. Um, this intentional obscurity forces us readers to replace the characters in the story with the faces and bodies of people that we know in the real world, in our lives. We put ourselves in the world of Omelas. We fill in her intentional blanks with the only resource we have, the things we know. Combine this tactic with one of Le Guin's tics, she invokes the you word, she asks, she asks us to be an active participant in the world building. Do you believe, she asks. I fear that Omela strikes you as too goody-goody, she says. If an orgy would help, don't hesitate. Um, uh, I had to work that in, sorry. Or they could have known that, she says, as you like it. Um, the effect of this, maybe subliminally, is that we as readers begin to bear responsibility for this world. Uh, we helped create it, after all. So as she walks us through this world and then we take part in its creation, we also begin to bear responsibility for the dark secret, the child kept in the basement. Now, if she had ended with the child in the basement, the story would force us to focus on our responsibility for that child. She would be, in a sense, asking us to imagine ourselves as monsters of sorts. But again, she takes it one step further and presents us with a choice. We, the active readers of the story, see that there is an alternative, and at the very end, 
by showing us just a glimpse of individuals walking away into the unknown, she indicts us. She forces us to contemplate making that tough choice. If you consider the story a thought experiment, we the readers have no choice but to participate. If she had ended earlier just with the child in the basement, it would be much easier for us to shrug off our responsibility for this world's dark secret. Okay, and let's see how we're doing on time. Good. Okay, we're going to quickly move on to a good man is hard to find. Um, time's running away from me a little bit, so I'll try to get to this one. Uh, I could do a whole seminar on this story, and I've been teaching it for years. <laughs> uh, this is a Southern Gothic classic by Flannery O'Connor. It concerns an elderly woman on a road trip who is stuck in the past. She meets a serial killer on the road and ultimately comes to an untimely demise. Uh, <laughs> The first thing I want to talk about with this story is hearkening back to the idea of keeping your promises or honoring the contract you make with the reader. Oddly enough, this story both adheres to this rule and finds a way to break that rule, too. Um, that should be an additional seminar on breaking rules. We'll get there someday. The story opens up from the grandmother's point of view. She, her son, his wife, and the grandchildren are about to go on a family vacation to Florida. The first thing she says is, here, this fellow that calls himself the misfit is loose from the federal pen and headed toward Florida, and you read here what it says he did to these people. Just you read it. I wouldn't take my children in any direction with a criminal like that loose in it. I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did. Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> what you say on page one matters, right? Um, if I didn't meet the misfit in the story, I would have been awfully disappointed, okay? From that first paragraph, his presence is felt, and the story telegraphs that our meeting him is inevitable. So in my opinion, it would be pretty hard to end the story without putting me in the same room as the misfit. And as you know from reading the story, we do in fact meet him, and it's those final scenes that the story reaches its poignant and I think unforgettable climax. Um, again, I can't give a full lecture on the story, but in a nutshell, we're presented with a flawed woman who is stuck in the past. Throughout the story, we get the sense that the grandmother's own family can't stand her, that the grandmother is perhaps pushy and demanding, that she's stuck in a world that doesn't exist anymore with her plaintive cry of a good man is hard to find. I always find myself deep into the story despising the grandmother, feeling like she's the worst kind of Christian, the one who talks in high tones and wears white gloves, but has no real relationship with spirituality, no relationship to generosity. Um, many discussions of the story revolve around whether or not the grandmother receives a moment of grace in that final moment before her death, in the moment after she's witnessed her entire family be shot by the misfit and his henchmen. Um, the moment in question is when the grandmother speaks for the last time to the misfit. She says, Why, you're one of my own babies. Why, you're one of my own children, O'Connor writes. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Um, today, I'm not so concerned with this question of grace, but with how O'Connor allows these final moments to descend into strangeness, which is what allows us to contemplate this complex notion in the first place. This final scene in the woods in which the misfit philosophizes about whether or not it would have been better if Jesus rose from the dead is sublime and odd. There are moments in those final pages where we begin to sympathize with the misfit, a man who is troubled, possibly deranged. He's a serial killer, but he's also unquestionably intelligent and maybe empathic. 
what O'Connor does in those final moments is to allow her story to inhabit the messiness of the world, to resist the neat ending. O'Connor uses the final scenes of her story to reflect back a cracked and broken mirror to humanity. The most unfathomable chain of events is somehow rendered possible, and maybe not even possible, but believable. There's a huge coincidence that the story revolves around, and in most workshop settings, I'd probably be railing against a coincidence this big, this glaring, but O'Connor makes it work somehow, magically. Is it that she's opening up our deepest fears and playing upon them? Is she so plugged into this human subconscious that we trust her in these moments? There isn't one clear answer here. And from a technical point of view, she does another thing that I wouldn't allow in a workshop setting. Uh, the entire story is told from the third person limited point of view of the grandmother, and then it shifts. She switches perspectives in the final scene. It shouldn't work, but it does. And we are left with one of the most memorable and chilling endings I've ever read in literature. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Some fun, Bobby Lee said. Shut up, Bobby Lee, the misfit said. It's no real pleasure in life. Um, the final thing I'll say about this story and about endings in general, about writing in general, is follow the rules until you can't anymore. <laughs> You're going to eventually uh, break every best practice I said here and be messy, be weird, and allow your imagination to take over. There's nothing, nothing worse than a too tidy ending, and there's nothing quite like a story like this, like A Good Man is Hard to Find, to show us just how strange life is, how strange and awe-inspiring and frightening and haunting the world can be. We should probably follow best practices, but sometimes it's the beauty of capturing this messiness, the flaws, the unexpectedness that allows us to strike gold with our work. Switch perspectives at the end of the story? It probably won't work, but try it. You can always revise and fix the ending later, okay? Now, I just wanna quickly go over my little final checklist here and I'll leave a few minutes for questions, all right? So on the back of the sheet, uh, let me make sure I have one. Oh, there it is, okay. Um, so these are just some rough thoughts. Again, as I said, there's no easy way to do endings, but you can think about how you can find the mismatches and diagnose what's going wrong in your story and eventually the two things will match up. So I'm just gonna read them. Did your story evolve from your original conception? If so, has your ending evolved appropriately? Do you know what your story is actually about? Does this ending conform with this idea and help the story to achieve the effect you're seeking? Does your ending ring hollow? Does your ending feel too loud, quiet, melodramatic, etc.? Make sure the constituent elements of your story conform to the type of story you want to tell and that those elements match up with your ending. Consider diagnosing the mismatch by thinking about Molly's equalizer. Have you embedded tracking devices into this work so that the ending bell makes a loud, clear ding? Make sure that there was actually some kind of struggle, some kind of grappling, some kind of decision before your ending comes, and make sure the reader has been aware of the struggle. Has the conflict resolved? Has your character been presented with an opportunity for change? Did your character make a choice? If no to any of these, you may need to keep writing. Does your story end at the moment the conflict resolves? If so, what would happen if you extended your story by one more scene? Would the story become more complex, more interesting, allow the reader to see a greater transformation of your character? 
Where does the arrow of your ending point? Does this arrow gently guide readers towards some future? Does this ending allow readers to engage and grapple with your text, including the future that hasn't yet been written? Make sure that you haven't sapped all the mystery from this world. Make sure that your ending opens up the minds of your readers and doesn't close their minds down. Is your ending inevitable but surprising, but also not out of left field? If you have a surprising ending, make sure the surprise results from characters and actions that are already contained within your story and that your surprising ending doesn't leave readers scratching their heads. Have you kept the promises you made to your reader? Does your ending hold up this contract and deliver the goods? Is your ending too tidy? Does it capture the messiness of life? Are you stuck? Have you considered breaking all the rules? Why not? All right. Thank you all. Uh, any questions for me? I'll take them now, too. Yeah, any thoughts? Yeah, go ahead, Lynn. I just wanted to make a comment about Omerlux, which I think is probably one of my favorite stories. Love that ever. story. Um, and that is, you know, from whose point of view is this story written? Um, you know, it's this sort of anonymous first person who who writes the story, and we don't really know who this I is. I'm apparently somebody who lives in the city, or some omniscient I who is the storyteller. That's, I think that's a really interesting question about this story. It is. Very, it's so it's strange. It's it so is. unusual, and it's, uh, it's the way that it, I think sometimes mystery and, uh, and sort of discomfort force us into a text in a way that we're that we wouldn't get if something were a little easier sometimes right yeah, I, mean, it, I think it really adds to the strangeness of mm. the story you know and the, the mystery of it you know it's, it, it, i think it's a very effective instrument in this or device in this story and the other yeah. thing i just wanted to say is that i've ta I taught this story and to uh, beginning writing students and um beginning lit students and I asked them what they would do if they lived in Omelas and you know the spectrum of answers is really mm. fascinating um, in terms of what they you know I would take this kid and I would leave the town immediately absolutely to, yeah I would just leave the kid there because I don't have the courage and I wouldn't want to disrupt the whole town that's the best part and the possibility again it's all about this possibility right opening up This kid represents all, you know, our whole lives because we don't live in this town. Yeah. This child is well, the child. People can put whatever they want to put into that allegory, yeah. right? It's That's the great part of it. Thank you so much, Lynn. Yeah. yeah. Kind of off of what Lynn was saying, I actually had a similar experience to Lynn. I wasn't teaching it. I was one of the students in the class mm. who was being asked, what would you do with this situation? And the version that I originally read had uh, had an explanation before it about how she was driving through Oregon <laughs> and she saw a sign that said Salem, Oregon, and she was thinking about how perfect this place is and how it, uh. I, I swear about how it had left people out and not given people space to be themselves, but it looks like on the surface, this perfect place in the world. And she saw Salem, Oregon in her rear view window. Oh, wow. And that's where she first saw Omelas. Right, Omelas. Okay, yeah. that's so great. Thank you. Yes. That's so good. Yeah. In terms of the O'Connor story, knowing about O'Connor's religious beliefs yeah. helps me have some greater understanding of the ending. I mean, you must 
in order to be born again, you must die. Yeah. You die to be born again. And she was so set on those that, that parameters of her beliefs. Yeah. She's, uh, I, I have a friend who is... Um, Shocking. He's a, he's a Catholic writer, and he writes a lot of essays about the Catholic imagination with this story in particular, and it's, it's really interesting to implant some of those religious ideas about this into this. But I also love that it just, even, even if you don't know the whole mythology and the history of all of this, the strange situation at that end, the, the people meeting in the woods, it's, it's so weird and perfect, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I have a question. Yeah, this has been um, in my head since you said that the that the content, style, and spirit, tone content, and spirit of the ending has to match the tone content and spirit of the story. And what I thought first when you said that was. But don't we like surprising endings sometimes? And you got there talking about how the ending should be yeah. inevitable and surprising, but not shocking. It should mm-hmm. make sense. It shouldn't leave me like, wait, how did I? Let me go back. Where did this? Yeah. So I think I'm beginning to follow. But I guess, um, is it ever is it ever useful to upend the tone, content, and spirit? I mean, what? Yeah. What let me talk. Breaking that I know exactly what you're saying. So let me start by clarifying that comment, right? So let's imagine that your type of story that you want to write um, has a tone, content, and spirit that inhabits this range, okay, right? The majority of your story can be at this range, and it ends at this range, right? But in this world of the story, it needs to stay within this modulation, right? Um, some, you can't, you can explode to a certain amount, or you can decrease to an extent. If you imagine a story arc or something, um, it can rise up, or it can fall down. It can be loud, it can be quiet compared to the rest of the story. but within reason, within the parameters of the world of the story, right? Like the story itself creates, you know when you read sci-fi and uh, you create the rules of that world on the first page, right? So in your short stories and your novels and your essays, you create the rules of that world in your first page. And by that first page, you've created a range of possibilities for that ending that can be loud or quiet, but within a range, right? Um, Within certain expectations. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, it's like if your action movie suddenly got very seriously emotional and like Mrs. Dalloway or something like, you know, like action movie meets a Mrs. Dalloway ending, like, whoa, what's going on here? I don't know, right? How do these two things go together? That falls outside the parameters of the world of that story, you know? You know, of what you've been saying reminds me, and this question reminds me of what Grace Paley said when someone asked her, how do you know when your story is at an end, and she said, when I have two. When I have two. And, you know, it's, I don't presume to know everything Grace meant, but <laughs> it seems like the vehicle for um, the emotional heart of the stories, as you've been pointing out, is the surface elements. The things that we put into it work to create a separate emotional response. That mm. is the is the storm, no? Yeah. Something like that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm following you on that. Thanks, Richard. Yeah. If, if you're trying to end in a way that you think is true reality, because 
or true reality because sometimes things just happen mm -hmm. for no apparent reason. What, how do you do that? Because sometimes it's just complete. Well, I mean, when the strangest things in the world happen, we all still have a perspective towards them. We all have a reaction towards them. When the things, when the true, when, when something happens that falls outside of the normal parameters of what we would expect in life, um, I think it's, it's the framing of that moment, right? It's the framing of that strange moment. You can make, you can bring an alien down into this classroom right now. And if you, if you write in as the ending to this story, if you, <laughs> if you frame it the right way, if you, if you frame the reaction the right way, if you make us feel that moment, it'll work. You know, um, it's, I think a lot of it is just, you create, are you talking more fiction or nonfiction? Where do you, where are you coming? Yeah. What I'm saying is sometimes what actually occurs, if you're going to mirror life in some way, sometimes what actually occurs in life is, and it's not bizarre things, it's not necessarily absurd things like an alien coming down, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes for whatever reason, decisions that would affect the true line of an experience yeah. don't necessarily have any preceding reason to believe they would occur. Well, so what I understand, yeah. Like, for instance, if you were in a truck stop, yeah. right, and going about your life, and you have some other point of tension in your life, and then you're standing in line at McDonald's to get a cup of coffee, and someone robs the place and shoots you, yeah. okay? You didn't know someone was going to shoot you. You weren't even paranoid about it. Yeah. I would ask you this, right? I would ask you does it make for a compelling story and a believable story? And if it doesn't, then maybe that's not the story you want to be writing. You know, that's part of it. So sometimes we want to shoehorn these things into stories. Um, as fiction, you have ultimate, I mean, look at Flannery O'Connor, right? She sets up the misfit in the first paragraph and the odds of her actually meeting this murderer, of any person actually meeting this murderer are next to none, but she does it with such authority you know, it's a, sometimes it's a matter of authority, right? When you write with authority, the reader will believe you. So when she sets this up in the first paragraph in such a loud and clear way, we know the misfit is going to come in this story, right? We know he will be there. He's looming throughout the entire thing. Um, so I think if you write with authority, uh, you have to believe yourself and your readers will believe you. Um, that's part of it. Yeah. Mm. That's a good that's a good lesson actually. That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Real quick though, I think your comment about it not getting out of workshop again, I've been just coming a few times in these conversations. Generally in this situation, it doesn't get out of workshop. It's like, no, we probably shouldn't do that. You know what I like to say to all my students is that um, we're just making some suggestions and at the end of the day, you have to honor your own voice and learn how to make decisions on your own too. Um, I, my, 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 I know that when I published my book, I, I had a lot of voices telling me how to make these stories certain ways and I just flat out ignored half of them probably in the end, you know? And those stories went on to do very well. So it's just, you learn how to respect your inner voice and, and push that. You take what you can, you learn the lessons from your peers and community, and then you find what works for you. Again, none of this is prescriptive. It's just um, gentle tapping or nudging. I don't know, yeah. And, and isn't that really why we're here? 
why you all are here is to learn how to do this without the workshop, how to yes. trust our own instincts and how to work on our own. How to wake up in the middle of the night and hear those voices in your head telling you how to do this. So that's, yeah. Your, your comment about O'Connor and authority, though, she's one of the great authority writers of all time because that setup really shouldn't work. He's, he's in Florida. Let's not go to Florida. Let's go to Tennessee. Oh, there's this place I want to see. It's down this road. <laughs> I remember now that it's in Tennessee and not in Georgia, but I'm not going to say anything. We have a car wreck. Oh my God. It's so slippery. Yeah. You know what else helps with that? She's funny as heck, right? And her humor is so good. So her humor buoys us along. It's that it's that it's that sort of the authority and the humor that keeps us believing well, in her. And the moral parable that's kind of buried under there. Yes, moving exactly. this whole thing forward yeah. anyway, because it's Larry O'Connor and she's so strict. Yeah. You know? But it, you know, we all kind of know it, but yeah. it is funny as hell. Yeah, it is she, funny. She saw them as every one of these stories. She saw them as I know. Read her. I read her own essays about this story, and I just ignore them all the time. I'm like, I don't believe you. That's the other thing. After a story leaves you, it belongs to the reader, right? We can decide what we want to do with it. We're running out of time, so I better wrap this up. Thank you all. Welcome to Resonance Food. Okay.